Okay, well, um, last week in our weekly podcast on commodities, we promised you a little bit of a special edition today, and uh, this is uh, definitely what we uh, what we have, because um, instead of uh, Peter, who is normally standing next to me, I'm re- he's been replaced by somewhat much more intelligent in when it comes to commodities than Peter is. And uh, I'm very happy to uh, welcome uh, Nita Shah. He's Head of Commodities and Macroeconomic Research for Europe, working at Wisdom Tree, based in London, I believe. And uh, before you ask the question, I'm sure you know what Wisdom Tree is, so I'll let you explain that. But uh, what brings you to uh, Copenhagen? And welcome, first of all. Thank you very much, Ole. Thanks for having me on your show. So I'm Copenhagen today. Um, we've been presenting to clients on our commodity outlook. Um, it's great to be here back in Denmark after, uh, for me, it's been quite, uh, quite some years, you know, through COVID and all the other disruptions that we've had. And it's nice to see so much engagement and, and, and interest in, in commodity markets in what has traditionally been a market that's been a little bit more equity focused. So the fact that we're getting a lot more questions in commodities does indicate that uh, commodities are becoming a bit more into the mainstream of, of investing today. Yeah, we most certainly have more than just uh, power traders uh, in Denmark. We're obviously has taken a lot of headlines uh, because we have a lot of these uh, spread out the the country. But um, Wisdom Tree, tell me, uh, because uh, I mean, I come across obviously the name almost uh, on a, well, on a daily basis because it, it, it very much has to do with what I, I do in my daily work. But uh, tell me a bit about the Wisdom Tree and what you do there. Yeah, so Wisdom Tree, we're a global asset manager uh, focused on exchange traded products. Uh, we're headquartered in the in the US, and we have close to sixty uh, billion of dollars of assets under management. Uh, but here in Europe, uh, with about twenty five billion dollars of assets under management, most of our business is in commodity exchange traded products. Um, so Wisdom Tree really grew its presence here. Uh, through the acquisition of a company called ETF Securities in, in 2018, which was a specialist in co- commodity uh, exchange-traded products. We do a lot more than commodities as well. We do ha- have equity, fixed income, and digital assets as well. But still, in terms of assets under management, it's still quite heavily commodities. Uh, we were the c- first creator of the gold exchange-traded product, and we expanded from that into many other commodities, um, and today we have the widest range of commodity uh, exchange-traded products in, uh, in the world and um, in terms of asset management, the largest in Europe. Yeah, and what we see as well, uh, obviously, originally, access uh, to commodities was really only for the big institutional and uh, big banks and, and trading houses, hedge funds and so on. And and what we have seen, in obviously, in recent years, that this rollout of ETFs, uh, we're seeing that among our client base as well, that, that it has become increasingly a popular way to to gain access, but also uh, to gain some uh, some across commodity exposure. So uh, before we, and with that, uh, I'm just uh, asking, what is uh, basically the pros and cons investing in the ETF or ETC compared to investing in an underlying commodity-related company? Yeah, they're actually, um, equi- commodity equities and commodity futures, which usually underline the uh, exchange-traded products, um, operate really d- very, very differently. Uh, the Equities tend to carry a large equity market beta. So if equity markets are going up, uh, the uh, the miners or the uh, oil extraction companies tend to do quite well. And when equity markets are falling, uh, they tend to do badly. Yes, commodities are, are cyclical, so they should have some sort of relationship to the, the economy. But commodity futures tend to be a bit more late cycle. And therefore, 
uh, when you're investing in a commodity future or an ATP that's perhaps what they call commodity future, you're usually in a still a good environment even when you're late in the economic cycle. Um, so having these uh, cycles somewhat out of sync helps in the diversification effort of, of a portfolio, which is very important. Um, you, when you're investing in, in the underlying commodity or the commodity future, um, you have less idiosyncratic risk, right? You have very, you have less risk to the individual corporate, the management of the of, of the company. Um, let's take, you know, BP for example. You know, it's gone through a lot of turmoil recently yeah. because of you know of management, uh, corporate governance, for example, right? Um, and by investing in the underlying oil future, you're really mo much more grounded into the macro fundamentals that are driving oil mm. rather than what's going on in the management. And as you say as well, the companies, they can, you can buy a company in anticipation of what they'll do next year, but a commodity, that's a spot product. So that's really reflecting what's happening here now. And uh, so that's why also the late thing comes in that a company may have run ahead of itself before the actual underlying starts to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, join, to join that, that move. And you mentioned the example of, uh, of futures versus companies. I mean, this week we just seen a, quite a dramatic example in copper, where we have a Canadian mining company uh, with the, the bulk of its business in Panama, and they just ratified the contract recently. It's the biggest uh, employer in Panama, but suddenly the the government has stepped back and say they potentially want to throw them out because there's uprising in the country, and that obviously raised the risk on an individual company level. Whereas because it's not because copper suddenly demand has suddenly collapsed in copper, or probably the opposite, but uh, that that just highlights as well that the, the, the risk of, of individual uh, company risks compared to, uh, to ETF. So uh, I think, suppose, that maybe also takes us into one of the other questions that, uh, but maybe not, but what should, what should investors be most aware of when they invest in commodity ETFs? Great question. So commodity uh, performance, which is, you know, when you've got a, an exchange rate product based on the futures price, you've got various components of the return. You've got the spot price uh, return. Uh, you have something based on the shape of the futures curve. Now, I'm going to get a little slightly technical here. And it's very important. <laughs> That's, uh, I'm glad you're mentioning it because it really is important, and especially what's happening uh, right now with tightness in the market. Absolutely. You know, this is a big part of the either the source of the return or the drag on the return. And to put it in very simple terms, um, the futures curve, um, basically, you have delivery of the underlying at different points in time, and each delivery point will have a different price. Um, most commodities tend to be in what we call a state of contango, where the price of delivery for something in the future is a lot more higher than what it is for immediate delivery. Um, now, when markets are in contango, uh, what you'd expect is through the passage of time, as that contract becomes closer and closer to the front, the price of that, uh, that contract which should decline in, in, in if all of the things being equal. And that acts as a drag on performance. So contango means your performance is dragged. The reason why curves are in contango because there's cost for storage, um, and you know there's this thing called convenience yield. Sometimes markets, commodity markets, can be in a state of backwardation, which is quite the opposite, where the spot price is a lot higher than the uh, the price for a delivery in the future. And in assuming that the price, the the curve shape doesn't change at all, as the, through the passage of time, as the future price approaches the spot, you'd expect the price to increase. So you get an enhancement of, uh, uh, of prices. Now, why do you get markets in contango? It's usually a reflection of tightness in the market. Somebody is willing to pay more for something immediately uh, 
uh, then wait, then lock into a contract and wait for something to come down the line. That means that they're desperate to get hold of something, and that's why the price is a lot higher. We're seeing quite a large number of commodities in backwardation today yeah. uh, relative to a few years ago. So it's an indication that commodity markets in general are quite tight. But for a commodity investor, most importantly, that's a massive enhancement to their return. Indeed, I looked at uh, in some of my presentations. I use uh, just just put up uh, one of the ETFs that uh, basically has a tr- basically total return ETFs where everything is taken into account, and uh, when you t- compare them with the, s- the price of the spot price performance uh, five years up until two thousand twenty one, the performance was absolutely dismal. The spot price for return was quite a bit higher than the actual realized return, and now when you look what happened the past couple of years, it's basically flipped around. So uh, so in so commodity investors. Just a few years ago, they would basically have to bring money to the table every month to hold on to a position because they were losing uh, steadily, and that has reversed. And that's uh, probably also one of the reasons why we are seeing an increased appetite. And and if we, as we believe that tightness will continue to be uh, relevant and quite predominant in the, in the years to come, then that obviously will will continue to uh, to add to uh, to an investor return. Just on the before we move on from uh, from Wisdom Tree, what how would you say that they, that's what separates you from from other providers? Because obviously there there's, there's a it's become a massive market with uh, thousands and, and thousands of offerings. Uh, maybe not so much in in commodities, but across the board. So uh, how do how would you see yourself in fit into that uh, whole ETF world? Yeah, so we've been the pioneers in this space. We created the first uh, commodity exchange ready product, um, and we've built the most you know, broadest breadth of products. Um, and in some of the cases, we have the largest uh, you know, commodity offering, uh, especially in terms of oil um, and uh, things, single commodities like copper. We offer the exchange-traded products in almost every flavor. Um, so we have exposures to the front end of the curve. Um, we have, uh, in basket forms, uh, optimized uh, uh, offering so where as we talked about the contangent backwardation we optimize on the on those features in, in terms of a basket we also offer short and leveraged exposures for those who want to get that extra kicker and obviously the short exposure um, it, it allows you to take a contrarian view if you believe the price of a commodity is uh, going to fall you can uh, execute using our products there but innovation doesn't stop there. Uh, what we've tried to do is to try to build uh, baskets of commodities that are in line with what our future view of the world is. Um, so traditionally, commodity baskets, they've been designed on the back of, you know, what has been the past production uh, of these commodities and what has been the liquidity of those, produ- uh, th- mm. those commodities in the past. That's your typical uh, Bloomberg commodity or S&P GSEI commodity index, um, really calibrated on the past. But if we look to the future and think about what could drive commodity demand in the future, it's likely to be a lot to do with energy transition, moving away from the hydrocarbons like uh, uh, oil and gas towards the things that are going to be powering energy going forward. Mm. And in that circumstance, what we want to, what we've tried to do is one identify the commodities that are uh, going to be most in demand there, but also in terms of the weights we put on those commodities is driven by the dem- likely demand, future demand of those commodities rather than backward looking. Um, so we're constantly evolving, uh, we're constantly trying to put new products into the market and uh, pushing the frontier forward. Well, I was about to ask you if you had any anything in the pipeline. Obviously, I cannot uh, stand here and disclose, any, disclose anything, but I, I get a feel for, I can I kind of sense uh, in what direction you would like to go, and obviously that that uh, that fits really well into uh, I think how investors will 
we're trying to uh, to uh, to look for exposure to this uh, transformation in the coming years. Well, with all that said and done, you are just like me. Your main passion, I believe, is commodities, apart from your family and your whatever else you do when you leave your office in the evening. Um, and so let's talk about commodities because obviously it's been gone going through a significant and very interesting um, time in the, in the past few years. We all saw the massive surge after the pandemic uh, locked everyone down. We couldn't go to the cinema or go traveling, uh, so instead we just went online uh, behind our computer, start buying consumer goods. That obviously required commodities of all sorts of uh, shapes and sizes. It required it required a lot of freight uh, as well. So prices everything of everything exploded. That has since uh, come down, and now we're just. It seems like we've been in a bit of a lull now for the past uh, few months, but um, without putting any words in your mouth, because then I'd like to hear your your move, uh, your counter to that, because we have at Saxo Bank the, the view that commodities are still at the beginning of a, of a let's not call it a super cycle, let's call it, a, call it a bull cycle, because super cycle sounds really quite aggressive, but a bull cycle, basically a, a number of years where prices will be underpinned. We're seeing the uh, the funding cost, which is, uh, remain, is likely to remain high. We're seeing the low investment appetite. We're seeing lending restrictions. We're also seeing this green transformation, as we're going to talk about, which is going to create some kind of greenflation, probably. And then the whole fragmentation game, where we're seeing a, um, a, a world which is unfortunately not as uh, much in harmony as it has been. So we're seeing a reshoring and friendshoring that potentially also driving up uh, prices for individual commodities. So, so, so that's our view. But um, I don't know how much you, of that you share. I believe you probably some of it, for if not most of it. But um, if if you put your words on how you see the economic, the current economic climate, uh, how you see that impacting commodities, and obviously. How's the transition into something like yields and the dollar, which obviously is also uh, which are key key components as well when we try to to work out the direction of some of the commodities? Yeah, great question. And I, you know, just to preface, I think we share a lot of your views actually. So we're generally in harmony there. Um, I think you know, just t- touching some of the points that you made. So yes, we had a massive commodity bull run 2021, 2022, uh, because a lot of the world was reopening after COVID. Uh, except for China. And come 2023, well, end of 2022, China reopened and everybody expected the same from China. Um, but China chose its own uh, path. Mm. Uh, it looked to the Western world and said, ooh, they've got an inflation problem. We don't want that. Um, and so it opened up with a lot of restraint. So China has been a massively disappointing story for most of this year. But more recently, it has been uh, stimulating. And... Um, in contrast to previous stimulation episodes, like, say, uh, in the aftermath of the 2008 uh, global financial crisis, uh, where China went out with big bazookas uh, in terms of stimulus, it's gone very piecemeal this time. Uh, So quite restrained, piecemeal, but almost every couple of days it's announcing something. Um, And when you aggregate everything that China's been doing, it's quite meaningful. And you're starting to see the economic data from China uh, improve, and we believe that should be supportive for, for commodities um, from a you know, cyclical standpoint. But even before you get to there at that point, if you look on the ground and you look at China's consumption of commodities, even during the weak macro uh, mm. data re- releases that it was producing, commodity demand was pretty strong. It was, it was held up really well compared to historic trends. And that seems to be a story of China using wheat prices strategically. When copper prices are so low, why not increase grid expenditure? Because China has net zero ambitions by the year 2060. It needs to 
reduces emissions from vehicles. And the best way to do that is shift to electric vehicles as fast as possible. When copper prices are weak, the best time to do that. Mm -hmm. And you can see its grid expenditure has been very strong. Copper demand has been very strong. And now we're seeing that cyclical kicker on that because of stimulus that could go much higher as well. Um, while you know everyone had pinned their hopes on China, I guess the rest of the world has been uh, somewhat encumbered by higher interest rates and you know fiscal retrenchment to a st an extent. So you know the 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 global economy, I guess, is cooling to an extent. Um, but uh, uh, you know, as China uh, stimulates, that could sort of be that counterbalance to to, to that. Mm. That's the sort of the, the, the very short term, but the medium term picture for commodities, I think, is largely driven by what you alluded to, is that we're seeing this transition uh, to towards uh, renewable types of uh, energy uh, consumption, and that will change the composition of types of commodities that will be utilized. Uh, it'll be a lot more metal heavy, um, and you know, while you may refrain from using the word super cycle, I think supercycle could be apt for a select number of commodities. Mm -hmm. Past supercycles mm -hmm. in commodities were largely driven by um, mass industrialization and urbanization. We saw in you know the industrialization of Europe, industrialization of the US, which happened a lot later, and then the industrialization and urbanization of China uh, in you know the late nineties and two thousands. They were driven by individual ge geographies. When we look at energy transition, that's a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So every country around the world, at different speeds, are following the same strategy. That will be a massive boon for a lot of commodities that are in short supply. Yeah, so basically the story that we may have some economic weakness uh, in the short to medium term, but we may also have the, uh, the supply side being equally challenged by some of the reasons why we're having economic weakness in terms of funding costs and so on that has, that's likely to remain high at, for the time being. Let's take a look at some of the individual because obviously the, it's a massive ocean of commodities and we, we haven't got hours. Uh, so I think we'll just stick to a, to a few of the, the our, our, our clients' favorites and obviously first and foremost, uh, gold, which uh, everyone either love or hate. Um, some has, has loved it less in recent years because of Bitcoin, but I'll still, uh, I'll still say these two are two extremely separate things because when something moves 70% in the opposite direction of going up, then it's not really a, a store of wealth and it's a, it's, it's a speculative product, which obviously can easily go up further, but let's stick with gold. We're seeing it right now as, um, and, and what I find fascinating with what we've seen this past month is this extreme dislocation between what normally drives gold. Real yields has been, uh, if anything, going higher. The dollar has uh, stayed firm and gold has suddenly jumped $200. I think we can all agree that, yes, Middle East uh, conflict triggers uh, probably got the ball rolling. Speculators wrong-footed uh, with short positions helped to, uh, to drive it. But there must be other things going on as well. Have you got any, any idea or views about uh, are there other things right now uh, from an investment perspective you should watch in, in the gold market to understand why, why we're seeing this, uh, this extreme outperformance just right now? Great question. And um, maybe if I can refer to uh, a model that yeah. I created for, for gold. Um, so I created this model back in 2015. And the motivation there was people all sorts of things that should be moving gold price anytime. Uh, people talk about the monsoon in India should be uh, good for gold prices uh, because, um, you know, uh, if you get a good monsoon, farmers are more wealthy, they spend more money in gold, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, so if I, what my motivation there was to take as many data series that should be moving gold prices according to the, the common narrative 
uh, put them into a, into a model in a multivariate fashion. And then it will control for what is the most important things. And what the, the exercise does, it tells you it's just generally four things that move gold prices. It, they move 65% of gold price movements can be explained by four things. Uh, the first thing is inflation. So inflation rises, that's good for gold. Uh, the dollar uh, exchange rate. So if you look at the dollar basket and looking at gold in dollar terms, uh, if you see dollar appreciation, that's bad for uh, gold prices. Uh, then bond yields, as you've alluded to, as, as bond yields rise, as in bond prices fall, uh, that's bad for gold prices. And that makes sense, right? Bonds and gold are competing uh, anti-fragile um, types of assets and their prices should move in the same direction. And the last thing is uh, sentiment towards gold. Um, and we measured that using positioning in gold uh, futures. So if I take that, that model and I, I look at the past movement of all of these variables, the do, you know, dollar, uh, treasury yields, and uh, uh, inflation, and uh, sentiment, actually, at the end of September, um, the, the actual gold price movement and the uh, what, what comes out of the model were absolutely neck and neck. Mm -hmm. It was completely explained. Yep. Um, but come mid-October, they moved apart. Now, what happened? Um, clearly, we had a war that started at the beginning of October, and therefore, uh, some of the departure between actual gold prices and what comes out of the model could be explained by that geopolitical premium that um, that there was investor demand for gold um, that that uh, wasn't apparent. Now, I should stress in my model, I'm looking at investor sentiment towards gold using speculative positioning in the gold futures markets. Yeah, because I was about to ask because we yep. all, we've seen a massive drain of ETFs now for uh, for past few years, and but that's probably to do with asset managers basically sitting there on the fence, saying the cost of holding gold position right now is six percent on an annual basis. The, we uh, we're still not uh, peak rates, so uh, we have time. The price has not really moved to too far away from our comfort zone, so we're sitting on the fence. We want to get involved, but uh, we haven't got the signal yet. That's maybe the. That's that's precisely it. The institutional market has been absent from the gold market. Um, we've seen ETF flows going, you know, in, in, in negative for the best part of the year, and speculative positioning in gold futures has been extremely weak. So, mid at the beginning of October, despite the fact that we had this geopolitical crisis, spec positioning in gold was really weak. But towards the end of October, uh, actually started to reverse, and I think the price increase basically caused a lot of the, uh, you know, the spec shorts to be covered. Mm. And that's basically been driving, you know, that second momentum yeah. in, in gold prices towards the end of October. I should stress that it was very much an institutional phenomenon because retail demand for gold has been stellar. Yeah. Uh, you've been seeing retail, the big retail markets like in China, India, Turkey, they've all been really strong. And even in, you know, US and uh, other markets, bar and coin uh, demand has been really strong. So is it, there's a little bit of a dichotomy between the institutional yeah. and retail markets. I think at the same time, we also just have to look at the central banks. So far this year, they hoovered up uh, around 800, 800 tons during the first three quarters. Uh, ETF uh, withdrawals has been around 200 tons. So yep. uh, an ETF flows come and go. Central bank demand tends to, uh, tends to disappear. 
yeah. only come back into the market if you uh, if you uh, maybe a Russian central bank suddenly can't access uh, liquids and you need to sell your gold. But otherwise, it tends to be tends to disappear from the market. So that's obviously keeping, in my view, a soft flow into the market. Mm. Uh, we should not get into a discussion about the the stability of the bond market. I think we'll leave that to to someone else to talk about because that that can can get a little bit contentious. But I think. Also, there is the fact that we saw gold actually rise at a time where we saw a yield spiking higher, mm. maybe creating a little bit of concern that the markets start to worry about something breaking. Uh, perhaps the, the the higher the yield, the, the the faster we could go towards a reversal uh, in terms of uh, because it's it's leading to some tightness uh, as well. But um, but nevertheless, I think the um, my view is uh, that's that's my view. But the the what so. What do you think? What does your model tell you about the, uh, the 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 coming months and quarters? Yeah, so um, the model is in of itself doesn't come up with a forecast, but I can feed any macroeconomic view of the world into that model and come up with a gold price that's consistent with that. So if I take the consensus view, so I take Bloomberg's con- survey of economists, um, their views on bond yields, which are to decline, dollar uh, exchange, you know, dollar to depreciate and inflation to moderate. So they're kind of opposing things. Put all that into the into the model. I get to a gold price of 2,090 by uh, Q3 of 2024. So that will be a new all-time high for, yeah. for gold in nominal terms, not in real terms. Um, and, you know, surpass the past peak that happened in uh, August of 2020, yeah. around 2060. So there's still plenty of upside for, for gold, even despite the fact that we've got a political premium in there. Mm. Now, in that model, obviously, uh, what I don't get from co- consensus is a view on um, investor sentiment. And what I plug into that model is something very conservative around 70, uh, 75,000 contracts net long, which is around ha- half the uh, yeah. spec length of what we've got today. Yeah. So there's probably upside on that as well yeah. if, if we maintain spec uh, length of uh, uh, what we have today. Yeah, interesting. But and how do you think that would, uh, because another, obviously, two other metals that uh, sometimes get c- talked about when we talk about gold is uh, silver and to a certain extent also platinum. I noticed, obviously, that during this rally, they've both been left a little bit by the wayside, mm. has been struggling to keep up with gold. And that does, to a certain extent, indicate that this is also, I think, two things. First of all, that the central banks are buying gold. They're not buying silver or platinum. So that's obviously providing some support. But at the same time, it has been, some of that has also been some geopolitical uh, activity going on. But but how do you see silver and uh, and, and platinum from from a semi-industrious uh, basis in the in the coming years as well? Will, will they keep up with gold or will they outperform? Or how do you see that? Or have you got a view on that? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Your observation is is bang on that uh, silver has underperformed gold. If you do good gold-silver ratio, it's very elevated. Um, And silver, you know, at least 50% of its demand is in industrial applications. So it's a lot more industrial uh, than than gold. And so silver has been following the path of industrial metals, which have generally been weak because people have been worried about the economy rolling over Mm. more than anything else. And gold has had some more support about those, those same fears. Um, now, if you look at underground demand, um, demand for silver is humongous because there's a massive shift towards electrification right now. Um, so every car has so many more units of silver uh, utilized because the, the cars are a lot more electronic. Even if you're not talking about electric vehicle, a regular internal combustion engine vehicle has so many more electronic components. The demand for photovoltaics, so solar panels, is going through the roof at the moment. Uh, excuse the pun, uh, but um, and that's drawing a lot more silver uh, demand, um, and the supply of silver uh, is highly dependent on the mining for other metals. 
Um, and mining for other metals has generally been falling. So 75% of silver supply comes as a byproduct of mining for nickel, for copper, for all these other metals, and 25% is di uh, mined directly. With constraint on, on the supply of the other metals, silver's in, sh in, sh in, sh in short supply. So the fundamentals stack up really strongly for silver. Mm. Uh, but at the moment, the prices are just trading on macro trends. At some point, that's got to give. Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I mean, uh, again, I, I kind of share those uh, those views, and I think the it's it's quite often when you see a, a strong rally in in in, uh, in gold, then sometimes you it takes a little while, and then suddenly you see this come as a boomerang because suddenly you look for relative value and say, okay, gold may be a little bit expensive in the short term, whereas the others has has uh, fallen a bit by the wayside. So we'll we'll, we'll watch that. Maybe on platinum, yep. you asked on platinum as well. That's you know another important precious metal. Um, but if you look at its demand use, it's largely in cars. And, um, you know, car sales haven't been that strong uh, in the past year. Uh, but at the same time, the world is shifting away from internal combustion engine vehicles where the platinum is used towards electric vehicles. And, you know, the long-term trajectory doesn't look that strong either. Um, so I think that's one of the big things that that's holding platinum back. Um, Palladium is done even worse. Mm. <laughs> so palladium is its only use is in cars, really, yeah. and the long-term picture there is weaker, especially for passenger cars, um, which is heavily gasoline-focused, which uses more palladium units. Platinum may have more longevity than than palladium because uh, commercial vehicles, so trucks, uh, have much more diesel usage and therefore will use more platinum units. Mm. Uh, so probably that will see a lot more life. And also, platinum is important for the you know new energy solutions as well, including um, hydro the hydrogen economy. Yeah. So for um, the PEM membranes that you use in hydrogen fuel cell cars, uh, platinum is used there. But more importantly, it's used for as an electrolyzer in uh, in uh, you know in, in platinum electrolyzers. So to con you know, to hydrogen electrolyzers to to make uh, green hydrogen. Yeah. So platinum will probably see a longer life. And you've seen palladium prices collapse around 45%, and their prices are now converging. Yeah. Um, so that's a really interesting observation, yeah. And from an investment perspective, uh, I think what, what could attract some in investors eventually is obviously the fact that it's trading at near record discount to, uh, to gold. So, uh, so I think that's, that's uh, from a relative basis, that's, that's how I keep, try to keep track of it. It's just time is flying. We got many more things to we want to discuss, but I think um, we definitely just need to touch base on oil uh, before we move on to. I, I like to talk about the green uh, arm race uh, because I think there's some fascinating mm. stuff going on there. But the energy markets, uh, obviously, I, I tend to say right now the only thing I think we we can say for certain is that there's there's probably a flaw in the market. Saudi Arabia has given up a lot of growth. That they've given up a lot of revenues in order to defend uh, mm. a line in the sand. Excuse the pun. Um, and um, that seems to be somewhere in the 75, 85, to $80 bracket in, in if you look at Brent. And then obviously we've got the whole geopolitical risks on, on top. What, what's your observations on, on, on crude oil? And, and my observation is just simply that when you from look at uh, energy investment from an ETF perspective, I see tightness in the years to come. That basically means that Brent can stay stay at 90 for the next five years, but you'll still make money on an ETF because the tightness will basically mean that you're rolling into a profit on a on a on a monthly basis. But uh, let me let me hear your take on it. Yeah, I largely share the same opinion. So um, there's a floor being put in because Saudi Arabia doesn't want oil prices to fall too low. The reason is it looks at its own 
what do you call fiscal break even, right? What, how much, what is the price of oil it needs for its government uh, revenues to match its expenditures? And that's going to be around the $90 region. And it's fighting tooth and nail to keep it there. Um, it's given up a lot of production um, in, in recent years just to be able to maintain that. Um, now, to counteract uh, some of the restraint in, in OPEC production uh, in the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, the U.S. has been expanding its production, but that's got limited legs. Um, the U.S. doesn't have that much oil assets to start off with, and it hasn't been investing that much in, in expanding those, those assets. So that's got a tail off. Mm. And if you look at rigs in operation, they've been falling for a while. The other thing that's helped counter some of the Saudi restraint has been Iranian production. Now, this, that's puzzling because Iranian production is under embargo. The U.S. hasn't imported an ounce of uh, Iranian oil since the 1970s, but it has extraterritorial ter embargoes on, on oil, so on Iranian oil. So any country seen to be importing Iranian oil falls under the U.S. embargo. If they won't be allowed to use dollars in any of the transactions. So in the last you know, six months or so uh, prior to the Israeli war, and we saw Iranian production increase. Why? Because the U.S. was turning a blind eye to it. Mm. Yeah. But now it can't do that because Iran looks like it's being implicated. You know, Israel has accused Iran of having supported um, Hamas and Hezbollah and other uh, proxies in, in the region. So that will probably come off. So you're going to see some tightness. Mm. And the clear point is the capex has been woefully low across the board. Um, so while we may see demand for oil shrink, supply is probably going to shrink a lot faster. Yeah, and that, uh, yeah, that's that's how we view it as well. And as you say, that we're not geopolitical experts, but uh, but that alone, just uh, ratification of the, the sanctions could uh, could have a tightening impact because uh, Iran has most certainly, together with the U.S., been the biggest uh, increases of of oil exports and production uh, this year. Before we talk about green, uh, green, uh, just a green arm race, um, just touch base on the agricultural sector because I, th I think we've seen this year a, a, a bit of a divide between north and south. We have a, if you look at the performance of grains versus soft commodities, which are cocoa, coffee, sugar, and rice, and so on, we we got a distinctive uh, difference in performance. Grains has been falling, soft has been rising, and it looks like we're having. Some of that is, uh, I think, is El Nino, but we basically had a good crop season across the northern hemisphere, so ample amount of crops, sending prices of uh, corn, soybean, and wheat to lower, whereas we have the El Nino worries, which is already impacting production on the southern hemisphere of some of these key commodities, cocoa we're seeing in Africa, we're seeing rice in India and Thailand, and uh, and so on. Anything you want to add to that El Nino uh, story in the, uh, for the months ahead? Yeah, I think El Nino is very important in terms of disrupting world uh, trade wind patterns and therefore weather. Um, and it's largely been, you know, a, a tropical story. You know, the, the you know the hot countries uh, where cocoa, coffee, sugar uh, are, are cultivated, um, they've been damaged the most, and therefore the prices have gone up the most. Grains have been weak because of a bumper crop in in, in Russia, and even the collapse of the grain deal with Ukraine wasn't enough to keep the prices higher. But uh, there's one southern hemisphere country that's very important to the uh, wheat production, that's Australia. Mm. And that's, that country's crop cycle is yet to come. So El Nino hasn't finished yet. And, you know, there, there's a good chance that uh, El Nino will continue for the next six months. And so we're looking at the Australian crop right now. And if that fails uh, to, uh, you know, produce the yields, that could be a boon for, for wheat and obviously 
wheat prices are quite weak yeah. right now and uh, uh, spec length is quite low there too. Exactly. That's, uh, that's almost been a net short uh, throughout the, this year. So uh, one we must certainly keep an eye on. Right. Let's finish off with the uh, with the medals and the greens arms race, as we call it, simply because that uh, we're seeing the green transformation hitting uh, hitting the buffers right now. We're seeing some we're seeing some massive uh, drops in in some of the equity prices. The company is trying to uh, achieve these uh, transformations simply because part of it is the the theme has faded a little bit in interest, but also because funding costs has uh, has risen quite sharply. So some of these are very liquid, heavy funding. They need a lot of funding constantly, and that's that's driving down the the the, the underlying value, but. I don't think the green, the green, uh, the electrification, and the uh, is, is not going to uh, to stop here. And that obviously we know that this this requires all these so-called green metals, which obviously uh, is a bit of a conundrum. But uh, we have to we have to dig for them in order to uh, to achieve our our goals. Which metals are you focusing on in in that respect? And and do you have some numbers on what we can expect? Because people say, they, well, yeah, it'll, it'll rise, but uh, it will still be cabling wiring into houses. They'll uh, they'll uh, in China that will be the main driver for for copper. But uh, as an example, but uh, what wh- how do you see it? Yeah, I think there are several metals that will benefit from the transition: copper, nickel, aluminium, uh, cobalt, lithium, for example. Um, Copper, aluminium, uh, and, uh, and nickel, at least a doubling of demand uh, from 2020 levels to year 2050, at least. Um, but in the case of, it, that's an environment where you're targeting a one and a half degree uh, temperature increase, which is the, um, you know, it's the aspirations of the Paris Agreement. Um, but when it comes to uh, cobalt, maybe three times as much demand. In the case of lithium, at least six times uh, the amount of demand than in 2020. So we're talking about really large uh, changes. And most of that change in demand is driven by electrification. So electric vehicles, uh, grid expenditure, um, but also you know photovoltaics, uh, uh, wind turbines, uh, solar panels, all that sort of stuff uh, are, are going to be quite important. Um, now, th- th- the problem with that is that the pricing signal today isn't telling miners dig harder and dig deeper. Um, so there's a massive complacency by the miners to mm. actually meet that supply. We, what we may find is as uh, we get out, what is a roughly what is a cyclically rough patch right now, to you know cyclically stronger patch that will be coincided with the energy de- transition zooming much f- faster. Remember, these countries that have signed up to these climate agreements, they've signed up to legally binding climate agreements. Mm. And the policy dynamics right now are way behind schedule. So we may see policy catch-up, cyclical economic recovery, all coming to, 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 to sort of a clash at a time when miners are unprepared. Yeah. Um, and refining capacities, woefully unprepared. Now, I think the US and Europe have uh, you know started to wake up to this reality. So you've got things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which is the most misnamed piece of legislation ever. But but um, and the, the idea is, you know, that um, there are credits offered to bring a lot more of the supply chain into the U.S. Uh, territory. Similar sort of thing in Europe. You had Repower EU, which was the idea to uh, wean Europe off uh, Russian hydrocarbon dependency, and obviously the main beneficiary of that is uh, energy transition. Mm. But on top of that, you've got the Critical Raw Materials Act, which is being debated by the uh, tripartite right now as well. So there's a whole slug of money being offered to bring the supply chain of energy transition 
into markets that have almost no uh, supply chain at the moment. So there's massive knowledge gaps. There's mm. huge amounts of expenditure uh, going on right now. Um, and the countries that who are the incumbents in these markets, like China, especially on the processing side, are seeing this as almost a trade war and therefore are reacting in a tit-for-tat manner by restraining exports of their uh, commodities like uh, graphite, uh, gallium, uh, germanium, uh, rare earth materials. That's coming to a clash, and I think that would drive commodity prices significantly higher in the future. And the best way to hedge against this new macro risk, mm. once again, is to be invested in the underlying commodities. Because it's going to be really hard to find which corporates are going to be the, on the winning side or the losing side, even the countries that are going to be on the winning or losing side of this battle. Well, in that uh, regard, you mentioned also some of the geographical uh, concentration of production and, and processing and, and yeah, absolutely challenge that we're facing. I saw in your presentation that um, that uh, that you you're currently using that you were just uh, uh, highlighting two ETFs which uh, which relates to this one called uh, Wisdom Tree Energy Transition Metals and Battery Metals. Um, what's different? Uh, I suppose the they exist already and or do what uh, what have you tried to uh, what way have you tried to tweak them? Yeah, uh, so we've had these uh, products for uh, more than two years now, and so the energy transition. Uh, basket is the wider basket and it involves um, uh, nine metals. Um, a lot of the base metals uh, plus a couple of uh, plus uh, precious metals. Um, and the battery transition is a sub uh, set of that. Um, we also have equity solutions which play on the same theme uh, but can go deeper into the value chain because the problem with when you're investing just in the in the metal futures is one, all the metals that are relevant to the transition, they may not actually have futures markets that have, uh, you know, yeah. and even if they have a future, they may not have significant depth. So um, we offer equity and commodity solutions to complete the package. Now, one of the big uh, things that we've made uh, change in, in, the, in the past year is in the transition basket and the battery basket, which are focused on commodities, is we've introduced lithium and cobalt into them. So when we launched them, Two years ago, the liquidity of those contracts just wasn't sufficient enough. But the liquidity is growing exponentially in, in those. More and more uh, you know, commercial users are user, using those futures markets for hedging their uh, price risk, and that's driven up the liquidity. Now, we've introduced those in a very constrained basis because it's still the liquidity isn't high enough to mm. uh, you know, leave them unconstrained. I mean, if there were, lithium and cobalt would be the largest things in the basket um, based on their projection for three-year growth. Uh, so we've introduced them on a constrained basis, so combined they're less than 3% of, of, of those baskets. But as liquidity improves, we hope to continue to increase the, the, the weights for those two commodities. Well, that's interesting, considering we had a bit of a drop in lithium. So, uh, so if they start to uh, to recover, then, then you're adding exposure. That, that's obviously good for the, the underlying performance. Well, Nitesh, that was a bit longer than we planned, but uh, I think it was, uh, I find it very interesting and I hope our, our listeners uh, do as well. So uh, I can't thank you enough for, for stepping into the studio here in Copenhagen and, uh, and spend some time with me. Uh, hope we can do that again some, some other time. And um, I think this basically concludes our, our, our video podcast. This has also been videoed, so, uh, but the podcast will obviously be available uh, uh, via the usual channels. So uh, once again, thank you very much for listening in and... Uh, See you again sometime soon, Natasha. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.